So on Sunday, September 8th, we're going to start the book of Revelation. It's been 11 years since we've been there. It's taken that long to go through the Word of God. It's funny, I've talked to some people who actually came here when we started Revelation for the last time. Because Revelation is going to be a longer study, it's going to be four to five months, uh, we thought we'd squeeze in a series at the end of August. And there's been a series rolling around in my head for years, and we finally decided to do it. It's called Life Verse. It started last week, and in Life Verse, over three weeks, you're going to hear from four different individuals about select verses, verses or passages of Scripture that deeply resonate in their souls. These are verses that have carried them through the seasons of life, the good times, the bad times, and more importantly, and I know it's true of my life, you know, sometimes we go sideways in a long journey, right? We take off ramps with God. Uh, through my long journey of faith, there is one verse that has always brought me back to true north and recalibrated me. That's the power of a life verse. It's kind of like an anchor to the soul. Uh, something happens when you become a Christian. When you're born again, for real, like of the Spirit of God, uh, God remakes you. The Bible says before that you were lost in your sins and your trespasses. You were dead. Now, you were still alive. You were still a human being. You could still think and feel and all that. But the kingdom of God was unseen. When you become a believer, the kingdom, all of a sudden, you see it all around you. You have spiritual eyes and spiritual ears. Jesus would often say, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. Not through our natural mind, not through our physical senses, but what's God saying? And when you become a born-again believer, you start to realize the Bible, this book, is going to play a significant role in my life. This dusty book that you thought only clerics and priests could read, all of a sudden becomes your life bread. Now here's the problem. The Bible's a big book, isn't it? It's a little intimidating, 66 books, all these chapters. Wait till we get to Revelation. People are like, oh my gosh, how do we understand it? We'll walk you through that. But here's the beauty of the Bible. Number one, it reveals the attributes and the nature of God. We live in a divided culture, right? So television programming, they can't come up with anything new. So you know what they do? They pit one person against another. Sports, politics, just get one person with one opinion, one person with another opinion, let them argue for a half an hour, right? The great thing about the Bible is we can learn God's nature. We don't have to guess. We know he's a God of mercy and love and compassion. He's also a God of judgment and justice. And all that's revealed to us in Scripture. Now, it also has guiding principles for life. We just came through Proverbs. We learn how to live before God. We learn how to use money and how to navigate relationships and how to live with not only God but with our fellow man. The Bible's also a roadmap. Now, I can't open the Bible, and it won't tell me where to go to college or what career to get into. But if you read it long enough and it becomes part of your life, God will speak. That's why you hear Christians say things like, God told me to do this, or I heard a whisper of the Spirit. Probably the most important thing to me about the Bible is what I call the Emmanuel principle. John reveals this in the opening verses of John where he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and he tabernacled, or he walked among us. See, the Bible is living because it's a person. I've been in places where the room was crowded, and everybody was having a good time, and I just felt like I needed to be alone with God, and couldn't wait till I go home and open my Bible, because it's so life-giving to me. And the person of Jesus Christ can be found there. 
And then finally, the Bible answers what I call all the big questions of life. Why am I here? Where am I going? Why do I feel, think, and love? Why do I doubt? What is life all about? The Bible has answers to all those questions. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message, said, Christians feed on Scripture. Holy Scripture nourishes the holy community as food, the human body. Christians don't simply learn or study or use Scripture. I love this. We assimilate it. Take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cups of cold water, missions to the world, healing and evangelism, justice in Jesus' name, hands raised in adoration of the Father, feet washed in the company of the Son. Is that Christianity or what? In other words, when the Word of God is read or taught, your, your heart beats out of your chest and, and you want to go in Jesus' name. I think that's most of our story. Contrast that with what I call Bible idolatry. Anybody ever experienced that? I'm sure you have. Bible idolatry finds its greatest expression in legalism. Its greatest expression in a rigid adherence to the letter of Scripture minus God's presence. You know where we're masters of this? The Pharisees. Jesus said to them, and he commended them, he said, he said you guys are so good at tithing, you do it right down to the spices. But you missed the whole point. You missed the whole point. He said one time, he said, you search and you read the scriptures because you think in them you would find life, and yet they testify of me. And what he was saying is, when I'm in your presence, you can't even find me or see me. You can't even see the kingdom. You see, the, the, the goal of Bible reading, the goal of, of scripture is that we would know God and be conformed into his image. Paul told a young Timothy that all scripture was God-breathed. It could be used for doctrine, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Here's the goal, that the man of God would be complete, lacking nothing. God wants you to grow. He wants you to grow every year. He wants you to grow every decade. He wants us to grow in the knowledge of who he is and be conformed to the image of Christ. So, life verse, the reason why we're doing it is not to elevate one scripture above another. That's not the point. It's that we all might go a little deeper in Scripture. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are like, I don't have a life verse. Well, that's the point of the series. Wouldn't it be cool if everybody in Calvary Chapel, Delaware County, had a life verse? Wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't it be cool if everybody in Calvary Chapel, Delaware County, had a life verse? Yeah. Now, I know there's someone out there I don't need no stinking life verse. I study the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's okay. It's okay. The challenge is, would you pray and would you search the scriptures and let God reveal a verse to you? Here's why. Because we all need to hear your story. See, it's all about the story. We have an interactive board out there where people are taking a Sharpie and they're putting their name and their life verse and a little paragraph of why. What's so cool about that is you start reading it is you could actually walk up to a person instead of talking about Tiger, you know, at the PGA or what the Eagles are going to do, you could say, hey, tell me your life verse. You'll be astounded at what you hear. 
Sasha has a life verse out there, Proverbs 19.21. She said, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord whose purpose prevails. She said, this is my life verse because I've always had a galaxy of dreams, a journal scribbled with unfinished lyrics, and a wandering mind that won't be still. When my heart is bringing with decisions, God will make them for me. I'm sure of that. Who wouldn't want to talk to Sasha about that? It's so cool. Uh, Matt has a light verse, Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works in you to will and according to his good purpose. Matt said, when I find myself continuing to struggle with sin, it shows how the Lord is the one working and encouraging me. How great would it be to sit down with a cup of coffee in the cafe and talk to Matt? Sarah's life verses Micah 7.8. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I will fall and rise, though dwell in darkness, the Lord is the light for me. She said, this verse spoke to me in ways that words cannot begin to describe. It gives me strength when I feel weak, knowing that even in my darkest days, there will always be a God as a light at the end of it. It gives me joy knowing that the sadness or mess that comes my way, there's always going to be an end to it. Finally, it fills me with an opportunity to give people this message in those dark moments that they may know that what they're going through will not define them, but it will give them a sense of hope and peace that they can endure this pain and it won't last forever. See, I know a little bit about Sarah now that her life verse isn't just a consumer verse. She wants to help change other people, and that's really, really cool. So last week you heard from a 31-year-old male millennial named Mike, who just happens to be my son. Now, the first two times Mike preached, I was here. I wasn't here last week, but I heard he killed it. Yeah, I heard he killed it. Now, most of you know Mike's not up here because he's my son. Mike is competent. He's well-read. He loves God. That's why he's up here. But I want to give you a little inside story about Mike. We have a little inside joke in our family that no one has ever seen Mike cry. You know he's cried all three times when he's preached? Do you know why he's cried? Because he loves you guys. And he loves what this church, this community has done for him. That's why he cries. And just listening to his life verse, I was just filled to overflowing and rearranging the price tags of my own life. Today you're going to hear from a 58-year-old black male from Africa and a 27-year-old millennial female from Delaware County. Next week, you'll hear from a 55-year-old male from Philadelphia with a brutal Philly accent, and I do mean brutal. That would be me. By the way, if anyone's ever gotten a card from me, my life verse is on my card. Some of you are like, I've never gotten a card. Oh, my gosh. Pastor Bob must not like me or know who I am. So the goal of the series is that we might dig into God's word and apply it. So we'll start with Laura Briggs. Give her a warm welcome. Good morning, guys. How are we doing? Good. Bob, you're really funny today. That was good. Uh, it was good. You guys can open your Bibles to Romans 10. I'm sorry, Romans 12. I know my life first. Um, so, yeah, a lot of you know me. My name's Laura. I'm the director of communications here, so I'm the girl that I'm sure all of you are sick of seeing my face and hearing my voice telling you guys what to come to and how fun it's going to be 
Everything we do here is really fun, though. Um, so part of my job as a director of communications isn't just to talk to you guys about what's going on, but one of my favorite parts of my job is I get to brainstorm series uh, with Pastor Bob, series that he's dreamed up or the next book that we're in, and I love doing this. Um, I'm an Enneagram 7, so you can learn about it at Calvary Campus, but I'm an Enneagram 7, and I love brainstorming, and I get excited about it, and I'm super passionate about it, and we sit in these meetings, and I have, like, 55 amazing ideas of what Pastor Bob can do, and it's so great because I don't have to do any of them. I just have to think of them, and that's the beauty of my job, and it makes me really excited to think of ideas that he can pull off. So um, this meeting, I had a million ideas, and I was like, oh yeah, like life verses are so important. This is gonna be such an amazing series, and he was like, cool, I'm gonna have you share. And I was like, oh. Like all of a sudden, my brainstorming was really scary and really hard. Um, and I didn't want to do it, but the scariest part was I didn't have a life verse. And he was like, Laura, I asked you to speak, and you sat in this whole meeting, and you don't have a life verse. What are you going to do? I was like, I guess I'm going to find one. Um, so I say that because there's probably a lot of you that don't have a life verse, and that's really, really okay. Um, that's what we're doing together. We're on this journey to get in the Word, to get in Scripture, and to find our life verse. So last week, you heard from my dear friend, Mike, um, who did an amazing job telling his story and his life verse. And God gave him a life verse to walk him through a specific season. And I think life verses mean something different to everyone. Maybe your story is going to be more like Mike's story. This is like what you're clinging to and what God's asking you to walk in. Um, for me, my life verse is a little bit less of a life verse and actually more of a lifestyle. And you'll see what I mean as I kind of explain it to you guys. Um, so I want to remind you guys, as I'm up here, as all of us are up here, that we can't plan for anything. Um, in our own power, we absolutely can't do anything. So this last weekend, I wasn't here. I was in Georgia on a retreat. And, you know, I had the week ahead of me. I was like, it's fine that I'm away. Like, I have the whole week to kind of prep for my message. And um, flight got canceled. Got stuck in Atlanta for two days. Got home. The next morning, I woke up. I hit my head on my car, and I had three bulging discs go out of place in my neck. And I'm a really dramatic person. You can ask anyone who knows me. But honestly, this was like, this was the worst pain I've, I think I've ever been in. I couldn't get into my bed. I couldn't change my clothes without crying. Um, and I had to rely on other people to help me. Um, so it was funny. I was walking around my house and crying. And I was like, Mom, I have to talk on Sunday morning like this. It's going to be so awkward. But I have full mobility now, and God is good. Um, yeah. So prepping for this message, I thought about my life. I didn't have a verse, so I have to think about my life, right? So I thought about my life. I thought about what's important to me, um, where God has taken me, and it always, always, always came back to people. Um, I'm a huge extrovert. I love people. I love hearing people's stories, um, and I don't really have many free nights because I spend most of my nights with people. Um, a few months back, I was listening to an Annie Downs uh, message. Uh, if you guys came and heard her a few weeks ago, just listen to Annie Downs. She will change your life. But I was listening to an Annie Downs message, and she quoted Romans 12. And I was driving. Immediately, I stopped my car. I was like, that's my life first. And that's what I've been, like, clinging to and striving to live out, and I didn't even know the reference. And that's it. So pray that God does that, because it was a really cool moment um, for me. So open your Bibles. You're in Romans 12. Let's look at verses 9 to 13. I'm going to read out of the ESV. It says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, 
serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. And it was verse 10 that really struck me, so that's the one I'm gonna claim as my life verse. That's the one that says, love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. We're called to love deeply and sacrificially. And I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message version. Listen to this. Love from the center of who you are and don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil, hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends who love deeply and practice playing the second fiddle. So let's take a look at the context of the book of Romans quickly before I dig in. Um, So the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans to the church in Rome. And he wrote it at the end of his third missionary journey. Um, And for those of you who know the book of Romans, I mean, this is a book that Bob could probably preach on for a year. It is so theologically rich um, in the scope of it. And if I had to boil it down, just so we have the large overview to its thesis, Paul wrote it in chapter one, verse 16. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So he develops this thought, and the whole book basically boils down to three points. The first is the gospel provides all that is necessary for salvation. The second is he explains why salvation can be achieved only by faith, kind of reinforcing that first point. And lastly, how God's inclusion of the Gentiles among his chosen people um, ultimately um, fit in with his earlier choice of the Jews. So everyone is in God's kingdom through the gospel. And these specific verses that I'm going to look at today were to show how we are called to love one another, Jew, Gentile, anybody seeking after God, how we are supposed to love one another. So I grew up um, Delco, Delco girl. Shem sounds a lot cooler than me when Bob does the intros. He's like, we're going to hear from a black African, and we're going to hear a millennial from Delco. Um, But I'm pretty cool still. Um, I grew up um, kindergarten to 12th grade at Delaware County Christian School. Um, Loved my school, small Christian school. Go Knights. And then I went down to Atlanta. I went to Berry College, which is a small liberal arts school in the Bible Belt. Um, Worked there for a little bit. When I moved home, I quickly started working here. So literally, my whole life, I have been so spoiled with amazing community of God-fearing friends um, who I love with my whole heart. And because of my personality, because I'm a seven, and also just who I am as a person, I love people like really, really deeply. And um, I like to brag about my friends a lot. Um, And there's this thing in me that I want everyone to be good and happy all of the time. Like I just wanna be having fun and everyone to be laughing all the time. But I know, I've learned that that's not reality um, because sometimes loving people is really, really messy. Um, It takes hard conversations and uncomfortable turns and is something that I daily have to work at. But I also have learned that it's really, really worth it. And I think that's why these verses resonated with me so much because, you know, the Bible's not just asking us to love one another well, we're actually called to do it. So you are equipped to do this even though it's hard. So let's dig into the passage. If we look at verse nine, let love be genuine. Um, It's funny that Paul has to say that because that means that we can love with hypocrisy, right? So like literally in the Greek, and maybe in some of your translations, it will say love without hypocrisy. Um, But this, you know, the Bible tells us 59 times how to love one another. It tells us serve one another, greet one another with a holy kiss. All these things it tells us to do, to love each other genuinely, but still, we as a fallen people have defined love. 
Um, maybe we define it by how we've been treated in the past. Maybe we define it by what we think we're capable of in our own power. And what's really scary about that, guys, is that we project that definition on God. Um, we let that bleed into how we relate to him. This quote by Jonathan Lehman, he puts it really well. He says, we assume not that God is love, but that love is God. In other words, we don't go before the real creator of the universe and say to him, please tell us what you are like and therefore how you define love. Rather, we begin with our own self-defined concept of love and allow this concept to play God. Um, and this genuine love that's talked about in verse 9 is what carries in to verse 10. Um, so if we're loving without hypocrisy, if we're loving another with brotherly affection, um, then we can't be pretending, right? Because hypocrisy is pretending. Pretending to look a certain way that's not really how you are at the core of your being. But I know this is kind of a weird concept, but think about it. If you are playing it safe when it comes to loving someone or in friendship or in community, if you're like, I'm going to show them like 70% of who I am because that other 30 is really messy and it's my sin and it's my, you know, the things that bother people. So I'm just going to hide that and they'll just love me for the 70%. Eventually, you're going to feel super empty because they're not loving your whole self which is what we are called to. And this is why Paul emphasizes love being from a real place. Um, so I immediately, I learned this uh, very recently. I'm in a relationship right now um, with my favorite person in the world. His name's Josh. And we were best friends, and it was really fun. And we started dating, and it was like, oh, we have the same favorite movies in common. And we love going to coffee shops. And like, we're such a good pair, you know? And, um, and then we showed each other our messy stuff. And we talked about hard things, and we talked about sin struggles, and we talked about our doubts. And, you know, instead of just like the 70%, this is like a super happy, perfect couple. Um, once we started being real and being vulnerable and being honest, it was like, all right, this is real love, you know? Um, the hard stuff is really, really worth it, and he taught me that. Um, so let's jump to verse 10. I love what it says in the ESV. Love one another with brotherly affection and outdo one another in showing honor. And I, I love this. The idea of brotherly affection is that we literally have feelings for each other, right? So like, if we're loving one another from a place of affection, we get like a tingle in our guts when we see each other. Um, and a lot of you are super uncomfortable right now. You're like, I don't know this dude next to me. I'm like, I'm not getting tingly in my gut over this guy next to me. Um, but that's what we're called to do in this church. And I immediately, if you guys hear like this girl giggling over here, I immediately think of Brie Rainey, who's in the front row right here. She's one of my best friends in the whole world. Um, and we are neighbors. We're in the same small group. Uh, we go to the same church. We see each other a lot. And we text a lot. And every single time we see each other, we get tingly in our gut. And it's like every time we see each other, we're like, and we start like squealing and screaming and we just like love seeing each other. And it's like, didn't you guys see each other yesterday? But it's that kind of thing. It's like because Brie knows not 70% of me, but she knows 100% of me because I can go to her when my day is terrible and I can't do it on my own, I can go to her. I have affection for her. Um, and it's, friendships like that are really, really special. So let's keep going. Second half of the verse. What does it look like to outdo someone? So outdo means to be more successful than someone else, right? So we try to outdo one another in sports. We try to outdo one another in the workplace. I try to outdo everybody in catchphrase. Uh, so if you want to play sometime. Um, but imagine if we spent more time trying to outdo one another in honor here or in your marriage um, or in your friendships. Um, 
One of my closest friends in college, well, let me start with this. So Paul's writing this, this letter to the church in Rome. He's writing this letter for how to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? And I affirm that that's the context, but I have taken this in my life to say, what if I outdo people in honor who don't love God, um, who hate God, who don't like that I believe in God? What if I outdid those people in honor? Um, and that's a big part of my heart's cry for how I want to live my life. And I just want to tell you this story quickly. One of my best friends from college, his name is Ryder. He's really funny. He's really talented. Um, super fun to hang out with. And he's in the middle of transitioning um, to be binary. He doesn't associate with a gender any longer. And we went to a very small school. We ran in the same circle. So I know that I, it literally breaks my heart to the point that like, I want to throw up. Um, I'm the only Christian who talks to him. And I'm the only Christian he'll talk to. Um, because I start each conversation in my head going, let me outdo him in love. Um, instead of telling him how I think he's wrong or what a weird place he's in. Like, let me just outdo honoring him. Because um, I, I literally think that's exactly what Jesus would do. Um, so it's cool to look at the context of this verse and say, yeah, this is for the church, but what if we did this for the world? Like, what would that look like? That's crazy. The last point I want to make is this. What would Calvary Chapel of Delaware County look like if we loved one another with brotherly affection and we tried to outdo one another in honor? Uh, what if that was our church verse? What would it look like if we practiced hospitality and looked out for each other's needs? Sign me up for that church, right? Like, that's amazing. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 says this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, you know, living out Romans 12 in the church, she's gonna hate this, but my mom is a really, really good example of this. I'm gonna cry. I don't like crying. Um, I like laughing. <laughs> um, my mom's a really good example of this. A lot of you may not know her, but if you have the privilege of being loved by Kim Briggs, it's probably one of the biggest blessings in your whole life. She's the cute blonde lady who volunteers at the Welcome Center on Sunday mornings. Um, she's the lady who uses her gift of hospitality to cook massive meals for our worship team on Thursday night. She's the lady that you'll see laughing and hugging some of her lifelong friends in the atrium, and my parents are always the last people to leave the church on a Sunday morning. And she's just like me, and she has 5,000 things going on at any given moment. And she deals with the exact same family stresses and burdens that I do. Um, but she still finds time to volunteer at her church. She still finds time to meet with her small group and live in honest vulnerability with them. And she still finds time to be a selfless and beautiful example of a wife and how she loves my dad. So thanks for being that mom. Um, so she's a great example of how to do that here in this church because guys, we need to do that because we need each other. And life is hard sometimes and we can't do it alone. We can't do it with a mask on. Uh, we can't be pretending to be someone we're not and letting people in only 70%. Community is not easy, and we, meet, we need more small groups than we have. We need more leaders for small groups than we have. Um, it takes a whole lot of intentionality to step out, so guys, please think about stepping out. Head to the Welcome Center. That's why we have it. We want to get you guys plugged in. We want you to feel community so that you can be living in affection with one another. I'll close with this. Um, if we're going to be a church that aims to love each other like this, please do not be a spectator here. 
I beg you guys to engage. It's meant the world for me when I step out and engage. You hurt us and you hurt you if you don't get plugged in. You rob yourself of growing in Christ and community, so let's love one another with affection. Let's be a church that doesn't pretend. Let's be a church that says, hey, I'm completely broke. My marriage is falling apart. I'm addicted to pornography. I don't know if I believe in God anymore. I don't think I can sing during worship. May our church be a place where we can love without hypocrisy. May our small groups be a place that we love one another with brotherly affection. And may God help us become that place. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Laura. That was awesome. My name is Shem, if you don't know me. Uh, I'm privileged to work here. I'm one of the worship leaders here, one of the pastors. Uh, it's been a joy. It's always a joy to work here. It's always a joy to be able to wear different hats, play the guitar, swing a hammer, uh, be up on the lift, replacing light bulbs. I just love it. I, I have a hard time doing the same thing every day. So I feel like I have a perfect job. I'm very serious. I feel like I have a perfect job. Uh, so I'm here to share my life verse. When I was asked to do a life verse, I had a difficult time choosing one treasure from another. And so one evening at home, I, I asked my wife, what do you think my life verse is? My wife is here. And it felt kind of weird to ask her because it, it just felt so presumptuous. It was like, how you, would you rate my spirituality? You know, it just felt like that. But I knew that she was the only person that could give me an informed answer. So I asked, and she said, I have a life verse for you. <laughs> I know your life verse. But she didn't give it to me until the next morning. <laughs> you know, so, and so the next morning, she's, she gave me Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 9 to 10. It's up on the screen. Let's read it. By faith, he, meaning Abraham, dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Let's leave that passage there. I want you to notice a few things here. By faith, Abraham dwelt in the land that was promised to him. And he lived in that land like a foreigner would. I can totally resonate with the life of a foreigner. I was born in a foreign country. I was born in North Africa, the country of Sudan. My parents are originally from Congo in Central Africa. In their 20s, the Lord put it in their hearts to go and be missionaries in Sudan. So they traveled northeast with their two young kids and went to Sudan. My father was an evangelist and he evangelized around the hills of Juba and Torit and those places. They moved, 1955, left to go to Sudan. They had no idea that they would never come back to their country. At 20, they left. When I was two years old, they moved to another foreign country, Kenya. 30 years later, I moved to another foreign country for the love of Christine to get, to get wed to her. 
So all these countries I've lived as a foreigner. Now, I lived most of my life in Kenya. And uh, I just want to share with you a little bit about what a life of a foreigner is like. It's kind of peculiar, it's interesting, because one of the first things you have to learn is the language of the land. And it's interesting because as you start learning the language, your first language influences the way you process everything. And so your communication, it takes a long time before you feel like you're being understood the way you want to be understood. I felt that way when I first came to America. I spoke English, but when I would talk to people, I would walk away thinking, I don't think they got me. <laughs> or they would talk to me and I, I, I wouldn't understand. It would either sound careless or rude or something. But I knew I had to learn and just, you know, you have so many idioms here, and uh, I needed to learn all that. For a long time, you feel like you're in transition, just trying to get the feel of the land. Another thing about, say, living in Kenya, growing up in Kenya, is you just felt like there was, you were confined within the boundaries that the government and the culture put around you. So you constantly lived in a state of, oh, I can't do this that citizens can do. I can't accept a job without government's permission. So you are always, there was nothing stable. You didn't feel like you could settle at all. In fact, the idea of settling was so strange to me. People would say, now that you're going to America, are you going to settle down? I was like, I don't really know what that even means. For 49 of my 58 years of life, I've lived as a foreigner. You know, in Sudan, I didn't know anything about being a foreigner because I was a little child. But then in Kenya, everybody knew us to be foreigners. Uh, if you came to our house, we spoke different languages. I would speak one language to my dad, a different language to my mom, and a mix of different languages to my siblings. Friends would come home and think, what is going on here? And uh, that's just the way we lived. I mean, we were referred to as Wakongo, the Congolese. It was mostly a compliment, but sometimes it wasn't. That's the life of a foreigner, just, just a snapshot of it. And uh, so this was, this was, Abraham chose to live a life of a foreigner. Now, to fully grasp this scripture, I feel like we have to look a little bit at the, at the relationship between Abraham and God. God came to him and his wife and promised them a child. They were old, they were well advanced in years, beyond childbearing age. And when God spoke to Abraham, he said, look up to the night sky, look at the stars. That's your multitude, that's your, your descendants will be as many as the stars that you see. Now, Abraham was old and well past, you know, the age of bearing. And the Bible says that he believed God. He believed God. And because he believed God, it says that righteousness was credited to him. Because he believed God, righteousness was credited to him. Righteousness is basically uprightness. That's what it means. The Hebrews have a picture, a concrete picture of words. So two sticks standing upright, that's righteousness. Easy for me to understand, easy for a child to understand. So righteousness, the righteousness of God was credited to him. So eventually, 
Abraham becomes a father. He becomes a father in two ways. One way, he becomes the biological father of a group of people living in a specific place with a land that's promised to them. Biological father, descendants, direct descendants from him. The second way he becomes a father is he becomes a spiritual father of all that would believe. And this time his descendants would not be confined to one geographical location, but they would spread throughout the world. You and I are part of that family. So a Jew who believes in Jesus Christ receives the righteousness of God by virtue of the fact that they believe what God says, not because of their genetic connection to Abraham. A Gentile who believes in Jesus Christ is connected and given the righteousness of God by virtue of their belief in Jesus Christ, in the God of Abraham. So together, Jews and Hebrews that believe can sit in a room like this and saying, Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had, you know the, you know the song you're saying, it's very profound, very profound. This couple asked for a child, but God gave them not only children, but the whole nations of the world as an inheritance. That's how amazing Abraham's faith is. The fruit of it was so far-reaching, it's mind-boggling. That's how amazing God is. That's how amazing God responds to simple faith. Amazing. So Abraham, because righteousness is credited to him, his eyes are opened, and he sees that this inheritance that I'm going to receive is way, way, way bigger than anything that Sarah and I can generate. And his eyes are open to the fact that there is another place. There is a place far high above the blue skies. If you know the hymn, there is beyond the azure blue. <laughs> there is a place. His eyes are open to see by faith. By the way, that's what faith does. Faith opens your eyes to see things that you wouldn't see if you didn't have faith. Because faith, in a way, is like the eyesight to be able to behold things that these eyeballs cannot see. So Abraham sees this. He begins to see that this world is temporary because his eyes now are set on a destiny. And the destiny is the city whose builder and maker is God. We're told that he was a wealthy man. Genesis, Genesis 36 says he was extremely wealthy in, in silver, gold, and livestock. In fact, we're told that he had about 318 militiamen that could wield a sword successfully in battle. So he was strong. He was a force to contend with. He was powerful. But yet, he pitched, he decided that he was going to, because he was looking for a place that was permanent, he decided to live in portable conditions, in a tent, in, a, in structures without foundation. He was looking for permanent foundation. Now, as I was growing up as a foreigner and, and just trying to eke out a living and trying to 
to just understand what the scriptures were telling me, what God was telling me about my situation. In our church, I remember they prayed for like 15 years for me to get a work permit, to be able to work. And so I was in flux, like for about 15 years, nothing was happening. And I just knew that the scriptures had something. I just knew that the scriptures were alive and living. And my prayer was, God, take the living word and somehow make it alive in me. Make it alive in me. And I would read the scriptures. I didn't care so much to understand them. Because somebody told me, you don't know what food you ate last Thursday, but it worked. So he just said, eat. Just eat. God will make it work. Just eat. And so I would just devour the scriptures. I would just read the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation back and forth. And over time, God just began to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, just reveal to me his tender love for me and his amazing beauty toward me. And over time, he started, there was just this hunger for, God, I want to see you. I know I want to go to heaven, but I really want to see you. I want to see you for you, not for anything else that you might even give me. And, and just those impressions, my hunger, my deep, deep hunger began to get satisfied in ways that keeping rules and everything else wasn't working. It wasn't working for me. And uh, I just remember just hanging out with believers like me, you know, me as a foreigner with you know, citizens, hanging out with them. And there was a bunch of them that just, we could resonate completely. There was just like, this is not home. This is really not home. I have everything. I might be wealthy. I might have roots deep down here. But this is not home. There's more to life. And so together, some of my friends, we would just seek the Lord. And God just began to open my eyes, you know, reading Genesis about... <clears throat> When God created man, he was just a lump of dirt there, and he breathed into the lump of dirt the breath of life. And that lump of dirt became a living soul. And I began to see that within me and within every one of us here, if you have any breath in your lungs at all, there's a dimension about you that is uncreated. It can never be satisfied. It is uncreated because it's a dimension that the universe cannot fill. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? You can gain the whole world and still not be satisfied. That is the dimension that makes all of us restless. That is the dimension that puts you on a pilgrimage. God, I want to see the city. I want to be in the city that has foundations that are eternal. So that became my, you know, at a certain point, it really became my trajectory. The scope of the righteousness of God being credited to your account is so huge. The scope of the righteousness of God being credited to your account is far bigger. This, John says, behold the manner of love that the Father has given unto you that you should be called the child of God. Literally meaning stop in your tracks and look at this diligently. Look at it deeply. And that's my charge to every one of you today. Stop and look at the love of God for you deeply. It is far beyond mental ascent. Stop and let God reveal his great love for you.
Yeah, we can read it on the paper, but when the word becomes alive within you and you're all of a sudden lost in wonder and in awe and in love of God, that's God's desire for you. That's God's desire for you. And I'm, I'm just, again, we're all in a journey. I'm in a journey. I have not arrived. I've not arrived. But I am looking for that city more and more and more and more. My life is a journey to that city anymore. When I was 14 years old, I could barely speak English. The guy that I shared my school desk with came to me one day. He says, Shem, I have a vision for you. And I was like, ooh, visions. You know, what's this guy going to talk about? And he told me some things. And I remember going home thinking, if you didn't know my family, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know this. A week or two later, he came back to me. He said, Shem, I saw another vision of you. Now I'm really worried what he's seeing about me. And he said, I saw you in a congregation of white people leading music. I can barely speak English. I'm in Africa. This, is the, this might as well be the moon. I mean, getting a visa to come to America, I mean, we used to say it's easier to get to heaven than to come to America. It was so, that's just, that's what we said. So for me, it was, this is impossible. He said, I saw you. And he added something else. He says, straighten up. <laughs> Righteousness? He said, straighten up. I was so weighed down. I was so weighed down with defeat. I ran around the streets of Nairobi, the dark street. I know the darkest corners of Nairobi. I ran around all those corners. Defeated. Just totally defeated. Singing, victory in Jesus, my son. But not really knowing it in here. It was a profession of the mouth. A longing of the heart wasn't satisfied. I had a longing. There was a dimension in me that was eternal. It wasn't satisfied. Until I came to the place where I saw from the scriptures that our victory does not lie in the stuff that we do. It lies in beholding Jesus Christ. It lies in beholding Jesus Christ because as we behold him, Paul says, we become like him. There's a biblical principle that if you look at something and adore it, you'll become like it. If you worship a rock, you'll become like a rock. If you worship a cow, you'll become like a cow. God calls the worshipers of cows, you cows of Bashan. When we worship God, when we look into his face, his reflection changes us. And so that's my charge for you. That has been, that's been the only thing that has worked. <laughs> that's been the only thing that has worked for me. Jesus Christ, our destination is him. Amen.